show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are we serving today? I'm serving Christmas. Christmas. We are actually face to face. I'm going to touch you. Please don't. Um, Still maintain a social distance, if you will. Um, We are face to face for some Christmas specials, two episodes in December, to have some festivity um, that is going to involve gifts in our second episode but also I brought you a gift for this episode today and I think it's a very special gift. It is. I didn't realise until we had to pour it (laughs) how special it is. It's pretty special. (laughs) We are drinking mm -hmm. a very very schmancy port that Tim found in a cave. Yeah, that's almost right. Um, <laughs> that might make more sense by the end of the episode. Um, I have brought you a vintage port from 97, bottled in 99, from the uh, Sanderman company that I bought when I was over there in, uh, in Porto myself quite a few years ago. And it's been sitting on a shelf in my living room, gathering dust wondering when would be the appropriate time to crack open this vintage because I don't have vintage anything else I never do that I just buy something and drink it and this one's been sitting there gathering dust for a while and I think there's like never really a good occasion to save something for and I thought well I don't know if this is a special occasion as such not to downgrade it but it's the most appropriate like when else am I going to be thinking this intensely about port again I feel like if you'd have done this episode and not dusted off that bottle port You'd be questioning your choices. Yeah, I'd probably never have got around to opening it ever. So so here we are. We have poured ourselves with, it has to be say, I said, a lot of work on the filtering aspect. Um, it, it some did, vintage pour. It took 20 minutes to pour. Yeah. Yeah, it took quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> all right, shall we, um, shall we find out if it's worth all the effort and ageing and waiting? Yes. All right, I'm cheers. excited. Cheers. Oh, it smells good. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, this podcast is not about tasting notes. If you're listening to it for the first time, you'd be very confused by the fact that we're about to describe a drink because it is about trivia. However, this is a special one. Mm. It's incredible. (laughs) It's like drinking Christmas cake. It's like drinking Christmas. My entire body has gone warm. Mm. This is... Okay, we've got an episode to do. We can't bang on about how good this is, but I hope you're drinking port along with us. Oh my God, that's good. Mm-hmm. So the big news is vintage, worth it. Mm. All right, let's get into this. So port wine, also known as Vino du Porto, um, and that was my attempt at the Portuguese pronunciation of it, which famously I'm really terrible at pronouncing yeah. Portuguese things. Let's not go there. Uh, but look, it's a Portuguese fortified wine produced in the Douro Valley, which is in northern Portugal. Typically, it will be sweet red wine, often served with dessert, although it also comes dry, semi-dry, and white varieties. Um, There are other port-style fortified wines that you can get outside of Portugal, 
So producing lots of places, actually anywhere that produces wine, you know, Australia, France, South Africa, etc. But under the European Union protected designation of origin guidelines, only wines from Portugal are allowed to be labelled as port. Uh, the wine that's produced is fortified with the addition of a neutral grape spirit or brandy, sometimes we kind of know it as, but it's aguardente, which stops the fermentation. So it stops the fermentation, which means it leaves residual sugar in the wine, which is why it tastes sweet and it's of a higher alcohol content. The fortification spirit is sometimes called brandy, but it doesn't kind of look or taste like commercial brandies that you would get. Uh, the wine is stored and aged usually in barrels and it would be stored in something called a lodge, but it's a cellar. And in this case of port, that would be in Villa Nova de Gaia before being bottled. The wine actually gets its name from the place. So it, it starts being called port from um, the latter part of the 17th century. And it's named after the city of Porto which is on the mouth of the Douro River and is sort of Portugal's second city after Lisbon. Um, Douro became this protected region in 1756, which makes it the third oldest protected region for wine after Chianti, which we did before mm -hmm. in 1716, and also Tokai, which we have not done yet in 1730. Um, some people say it's the oldest one, though, not the third oldest, and that's because it's been under um, constant government control, whereas I think the others mapped out the regions but weren't under government control. So it's, I think most people consider it the third oldest, unless you're Portuguese, in which case it's the oldest. Um, in terms of grape varieties, there are actually hundreds of grape varieties that can be used in port production, but usually it's only about five that are widely cultivated. Uh, until 1986, it could only be exported from Portugal, from Villanova de Gaia, near Porto, which is, um, I say it's near Porto, it's just across the river. Fun fact, that mm -hmm. was because it was the year I was born, and they just knew it was needed. <laughs> <laughs> they knew they needed to export more of it and expand yes. their region. They were like, oh God, she's here. <laughs> <laughs> So um, one of the reasons it, it went from there is that traditionally the wine is taken um, d from storage down the river in these flat bottom boats that are called, now I want to say Barcos Rebelos, it's not because that would be Spanish. It's something like Barcos Rebelos. I liked your stank face as you said that. Thank you, I didn't know how I asked to try and pronounce it. Mm. Um, so it's actually taken down river on boats traditionally. Uh, but in the 50s and 60s, uh, Portugal put up hydroelectric power dams along the river and that kind of ended that tradition of conveyance. But you can still see them doing it, um, like for, you know, traditional displays and racing um, and the vineyards will kind of have their, their wine transported on these, these tanker, tanker truck boats. <laughs> I'm already struggling to get words out. This, is, this port is so good. <laughs> Um, so it comes in several styles, it's broadly divided into two categories, so wines that are matured in sealed glass bottles and then the ones that are matured in the wooden barrels. Mm -hmm. So the glass bottle ones don't have exposure to air, which means they get reductive ageing. And that means that the wine loses its colour more slowly and it produces a wine that is 
smoother on the palate and less tannic because it hasn't had that kind of wood and air exposure. Mm -hmm. So the wooden barrels um, mean that it exposes a bit to oxygen, it goes through that oxidative um, aging, so it loses colour at a faster pace and it will also lose volume because it evaporates, what we call the angel's share, which we've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. That means that the wine that you get in the barrel aging is also slightly more viscous than mm -hmm. you get when it's aged in the bottle. Um, it is further divided by the, um, I mean, am I going to pronounce this? Let's say the IVDP. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Institute of, you know, Port Wine in oh, Porto. And what does IVDP stand for? Instituto dos Vino do Duro e Porto. Okay. Something like that. Uh, divides it into, <laughs> into two categories. Normal, uh, normal ports, which are standard rubies, three-year-old tawnies and white ports and then special categories, which is everything else. So I want to talk you through kind of some of the differences, the, the main characteristics of the different port types. Please do, after your sip. Mm -hmm. Right, Ruby goes first. Ruby port is the least expensive. It's the most extensively produced type of port. It's the one that you're most likely to get if you go into a supermarket and get their own brand, right? Yeah. So after fermentation, it's stored in tanks, either stainless steel or concrete, actually, um, which um, helps to prevent the oxidative aging and preserve the bright red colour, all the full fruitiness. Um, for this reason, the root port doesn't generally improve with age. Rosé port is quite a recent addition onto the market, first released in 2008. Um, Rosé port is technically a ruby port, but it's fermented in a similar manner to rosé wine, so it has limited exposure to the grape skins, which creates the rosé colour, but other than that, it's pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. Then we get tawny, tawny ports. They are usually made from red grapes that are aged in wooden barrels, uh, which exposes them to that gradual oxidation and evaporation. And this gives them more of a golden brown colour than the ruby red, hence the tawny. Um, it gives it a slightly nuttier flavour, and they're usually aged three years in the barrel, unless it's a tawny reserve, which could be seven years. And then there are specific aged years, which are usually multiples of 10, up to 40. Um, and these are not from single years. They are blends. So it's different from vintage port. So in some countries, tawny is actually used just to mean any port not made in Portugal. And that's kind of an agreement they've had with the EU. Okay. So it could be a 40-year tawny port, but it doesn't make it vintage because it will be a blend of different years. And to be vintage, it has to come from a specific year. They're very particular about it, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> do, do, you, do you understand, though, if I explain I follow, that? yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, white port mm -hmm. is made from white grapes. Uh, ordinary white ports make really good basis for cocktail. That's how you will often have them when you're out there. Mm -hmm. um, they are best served uh, chilled on their own. You find often that if you get a sweet white port that's um, been matured in wood, then it, it darkens in colour slightly. It, eventually it reaches a point where it's quite hard to discern mm -hmm. at, from the appearance alone whether it was originally red or white. And what I've most have um, often had it served to me is with tonic water. Yes. So you get a bit of sweet white pour and tonic water in Porto. That's the whites. And then vintage is made entirely from grapes of a declared vintage year. Um, it is the most renowned type of port from the perspective of volume produced and revenue. Um, but it's actually only 2% of the overall port production. 
not every year is going to be a vintage year enduro so the decision on whether to declare it a vintage is made in the second year following the harvest so you don't necessarily know whether you're about to harvest a vintage or not mm. um, and the decision for that isn't like across committee it's made by each port house so each port house could have different vintage years what um what determines the decision well it just has to be sort of a really good year in terms of the weather they're expecting uh, i mean it's mostly going to be you know things that affect the terroir so the the weather and when they were able to harvest it and mm -hmm. things like that that's what makes a difference it's obviously going to be the same vines year on year and grown in the same place so yeah. it's just things like that that affect it okay um, so most of the complex character you get in Vintage Port comes from this slow decomposition of um, the grape solids in the bottle. Um, you don't necessarily want those solids when you're consuming the port, and so it usually has a period of settling down and decanting before people then pour it again. Mm -hmm. So that's the traditional way if you don't have like you know one of these filters that mm -hmm. you can <laughs> you can pass it through, which is what we were doing. Um, vintage ports might be aged in barrels or stainless steel for two and a half years before being bottled. They generally require another 10 to 40 years of aging in the bottle before they've reached a point that's considered proper drinking age. So the one we're having was aged between 97 and 99. And how many years ago is that? 22 oh God, years? I don't want to know. It makes me feel yeah. like so a it, grandma. <laughs> it's been in the bottle for 22 years. Um, that's that two year period in there. Um, so they keep their dark ruby colour, fresh fruit flavours. If it's a, quite a fine vintage port, it gains complexity um, for decades after it's bottled. In fact, it's not uncommon for 19th century bottles to still be in perfect condition for consumption. So the oldest known vintage port still available from one of the port shippers is the 1815 Ferrera. They did a tasting last in 1990. It was described as having intensely spicy aroma, cinnamon, pepper, ginger, hints of exotic woods, iodine, and wax, mm. strangely. But yeah, I remember going around these uh, port caves and seeing these incredibly old ports, and they're like, yeah, these are all drinkable. Like, they, don't, they don't know if it will ever go off. I mean, obviously, you can get a bad batch. Yeah. You know, you could spend a lot of money on a bad batch and think, oh, no. But, um, you know, they, they could, in theory, just, like, keep, keep going and keep developing complex flavours. Such an enigma is port. Mm. So there's something you will see on some bottles called LBV. Mm -hmm. That stands for late bottled vintage, but it's mostly you'll see LBV. That's originally wine that had been destined for bottling as vintage port, but there was a lack of demand. So what's left in the barrel, uh, that what had been left in the barrel for longer than planned uh, becomes instead late bottled vintage. This sort of started as a thing in the 1960s, but we're not quite sure whether it was Portuguese driven on their side or whether it happened from late bottling after it had been transported to the UK. Mm -hmm. So we're not sure whether LBV is actually a Portuguese or a British thing, but their histories are very intertwined as we shall see a little bit later on. One last thing I want to say about port is the sales of port have been consistently declining since 2005. Which really? makes me super sad because I love it. That <laughs> surprises me, but I guess it's also because of my age. I think port is something, I think generally, you tend to start to appreciate the older you get. So I think when I was in my teens and early 20s, port wasn't really my go-to. Whereas now I'm like, oh yeah, 
I love a good pool. Mm. Um, especially in the winter, especially when you're feeling Christmassy. Yeah. I will drink it all year round, but it's especially Christmassy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to chat to you about some tongs? Uh, yes, please. Do you have any port tongs? I know you're into your port, so... No, I do not. So these are intended to be used when you can't remove a cork from a bottle, as we did discover with this very schmancy port that we're drinking. Yep. Um, so yeah, a lot of the time the older ports will have crumbly corks, which obviously would happen over the years. Um, so it's more common for you to have tongs to open, you know, high, high alcohol, fortified wines and port. Um, so they work, they, they look like something that you would see in a forge. Because when I first heard port tongs, for some reason I envisaged like the tongs you flip stuff over in the barbecue with. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like giant tweezers. They're not, they are, the only way I can describe them is it looks very similar to the contraption that my grandparents used to use to put coal on the fire and turn the coals on the fire. Yes. Because instead of having like the double ended prongs forming back into like, it's really hard to describe this without any visuals, mm -hmm. but they, they have the tongs at the end, which are double pronged, but the handles are double pronged as well and they meet at the middle, yep. if that makes sense. I can picture it. Yeah. And but. that's probably because I'm making hand gestures in front of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, Google it, guys. <laughs> yeah, just get, like, why do you listen to this? Just Google it. <laughs> uh, yes, so if you can't remove the cork and you don't want to get a lot of cork in your port, use some tongs. May I just add, I don't have port tongs, so we absolutely butchered that cork. <laughs> <laughs> we really did. It, it was a lot of digging. It was a lot of filtering. It was, we used multiple vessels. <laughs> yeah, hence the 20 minutes, but it was worth it, it's, I know. Yeah, because I think when I heard of port tongs, I thought, well, that seems just like a really extravagant... You know how, you know, when you see sort of swords being used to cut the tops of champagne bottles and thing, and you think, mm -hmm. it's just being a bit sherry. Now I realise there's a really practical reason for mm. it. I absolutely want them. <laughs> Same. I, uh, when I was reading about port tongs, I thought, this seems really unnecessary and showy. But now I get it. Mm -hmm. So how do they work? Um, so the tongs are heated over an open flame. Uh, once they've heated up, they are held against the bottleneck for about 20-30 seconds. Then straight away after that, the bottle's cooled with a damp cloth or some iced water which causes the glass to shatter. Um, if anyone's been to my house, uh, they'll have seen this in practice. Thermal expansion is the reason why the glass on my conservatory doors is smashed. <laughs> right, science in action. So yeah, a lot of people go, oh, I like your frosted glass. I'm like, no, no, it's thermal expansion. My doors are buggered. <laughs> Not an euphemism. Um, <laughs> so uh, that thermal expansion, the glass shattering, gives a really nice clean break because the tongs are shaped around the neck of the bottle. Um, however, there can be some shards of glass in the port. So although you've had a nice clean break and you've got the cork out without it crumbling, they will strain the port when, mm -hmm. they, uh, when they pour it. I think I'd rather have a bit of cork than a bit of glass in my uh, port. I'm going to put that on your gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> um, Along with her back passage was wrecked. <laughs> I did not say back passage, I said my doors. Back door, sorry. 
I meant to make it more of a... Anyway, carry on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the shards of glass are strained out along with any uh, sediment through a decanter. Mm-hmm. And, unsurprisingly, port tongs were invented in Portugal. And that wraps up my very small piece that I've got on port for you at the moment. Good, I've got more you. to chat about later. But. <laughs> All right. I'm, in which case, I'm going to go back to the sort of UK involvement in port mm-hmm. because it's highly influential. Um, producers of port wine are often called shippers. Uh, so the early history of ports, many of the most powerful shipping families were British, English and Scottish mostly, and also some Irish. So in 1678, a Liverpool wine merchant sent two new representatives to Viana do Castelu, north of Oporto, to learn the wine trade. And while they were on vacation in the Douro, the two people who had been sent over visited the abbot of Lamegu, who treated them to very agreeable, this is a quote, very agreeable, sweetish and extremely smooth wine, which had been fortified with a distilled spirit. And they were so pleased with the product that they purchased the abbot's entire lot and shipped it home. So port becomes really popular in England after the Methuen Treaty, which is 1703. And that was that allowed merchants to import it at a low duty while England was at war with France and they were deprived of French wine. We heard this story as well, closely connected to something, you know, with gin, the popularity of gin. Mm-hmm. Basically, all the interesting drinks that came into this country were as a re- were a, because we were at war with France and we couldn't drink their wine anymore. So, <laughs> you know, maybe some good things came out of that war, I'm just saying. Um, so the British importers are generally credited for recognising that fortified wine would appeal to the English palates and, crucially, that it would survive the trip to London intact because it was fortified. So the continued involvement with um, the British can be seen in the names of many of the shippers and brands that still exist today. So Broadbent, Coburn, Croft, Dow, Gould, Campbell, Graham, Osborne, Offley, Sanderman, Taylor and War being amongst the best known. It's actually quite a, a strange experience when you're you're in Porto, you know, surrounded by very Portuguese things, and then you look across the river to where all the port houses are, and all you see is British names. It's kind of a, it's a strange sort of, yeah, a jarring experience. So the British involvement grew so strong that they formed a trade association, uh, which was sort of a gentleman's club known as the Factory House. And the construction of the building was entirely financed from annual contributions made by those port merchants that were based in the city. Um, it still stands, this building. Mm-hmm. So over time, the factory house became this bit of a symbol of the British monopoly on the port trade. And there were there were some complaints <laughs> about the, let's say, business practices uh, of the British shippers, leading to the Portuguese prime minister um, and a bunch of other important influential people establishing the Douro Wine Company. So in 1756, they wanted to bring more Portuguese influence and control to the port wine industry. And one of the powers that they had was to set pricing for what the British shippers had to pay the Portuguese wine growers of the Douro. So it was no longer, you know, that they got to do it really cheaply because the British government said so. Portugal, Portugal got some control back on that. Which meant that sort of the monopoly of the British was essentially over after that point. 
um, because the British then passed on those increased costs, adding them to the price at the port. In fact, the local tavern owners reacted quite angrily to the price increase, which led to something that was called the Tipler's Riots that broke out in 1757 in February. Uh, they broke out across the city, which prompted the Marquis of Pombal to send 3,000 soldiers to uh, stop the rioting. They thought, well, the, the factors involved in this were the foreign merchants, who they called factors. Um, they were primarily responsible for the riots, so they dealt out some quite harsh punishments to those people. Um, the British and the people who were sympathising with them um, got their property confiscated, and some of them even got jail time. So it's quite a big sort of riot revolution between the, uh, the factors and the Portuguese. As I say, this place still exists. Mm -hmm. There are 15,000 bottles stored in their repository, uh, including classic vintages from 20th and 21st centuries, and they still host a weekly luncheon every Wednesday where members meet and discuss the wine industry, their business, um, and they also have one vintage port at the lunch um, that is tasted blind. So the, the guests have to guess um, what vintage the wine is and which shipper it comes from. That, that sounds kind like, of like your perfect lunch. Oh, I'd love to go for lunch there. <laughs> I think it'd be great. I don't know what the food is, but that doesn't matter. Um, and for some reason, they at these lunches, they always have a copy of the Times that comes from uh, exactly 100 years prior to the date of the lunch displayed. I think that's just because it's a stupid gentleman's club thing. I don't think mm -hmm. it relates to port in any way. Also, one more stupid British thing. Um, <laughs> the, William Pitt the Younger, who was a British Prime Minister, was given port as a boy to treat his gout. <laughs> now, if you know anything about gout, it's caused by heavy alcohol consumption. <laughs> so this was probably not the right treatment. By the age of 14, he was drinking a bottle a day. Oh, just for his gout? Just for his gout. A bottle of port a day and by 14, and then he went on to become British Prime Minister. How the, was his gout, though? I mean, not good. Did it Absolutely ever not stop? Good. Like, no. Surely he was riddled. Yeah. <laughs> much <laughs> and at that point I'm going to stop talking politics <laughs> um, I've got a stupid UK thing actually oh yeah yes uh, we do have some traditions of drinking port in the UK uh, mainly at formal dinner parties mm -hmm. uh, when the port's brought out at the end of the meal um, and the tradition is for the port to be passed to the left. So the port... Like the duchy. Pass the duchy to the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. Pass the porty to the left. It's not got the same ring, is it? <laughs> no. Anyway. So the port, uh, it isn't served in a glass. So obviously if you go to a, a nice meal out and about at the moment and you order a port, they will bring you a glass of port. But I guess this is more for dinner parties and friends at home, etc. So instead of bringing glasses of port out, you'll have your glass at your table and bottles of port will be brought out and you all just pour yourself the port. But the tradition is that you have to pass the port to the left. Pass the port to port. Ah, mm -hmm. gotcha. Um, some people also have a tradition where the bottle, or if it's in a decanter, because it's obviously schmancy and they've had to filter it, so some also have the tradition for the bottle or the decanter to not touch the table on the way around either. Oh. Um, 
some cultures reject that tradition, which will probably make sense when I mention what I'm going to say next, which is, do you know the Bishop of Norwich? Not personally. No? No. No, not me. <laughs> We're not friends on Facebook. <laughs> well, um, if a diner fails to pass the port and people around the table are getting a little bit annoyed mm-hmm. because they want their port, um, they'll be asked, do you know the Bishop of Norwich? Um, that serves as a reminder to pass the port. Uh, now, sometimes people will not pass the port because they're hoping that people won't notice and they can have a sneaky extra glass. Uh, some people won't know the whole port-to-port tradition. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it happens. I do love a good passive-aggressive English tradition for saying, you owe me a drink, though. Yeah. I feel like there are many of those in social occasions. Even when like, you're sitting in a group of people and someone says, oh, whose round is it? Knowing it's not theirs. <laughs> I think it's because it's uncouth to just be like, oh, I passed the boat. Yeah. Uh, they've come up with, do you know the Bishop of Norwich? It's not as random as it sounds. There is an origin. Um, so... The previous Bishop of Norwich, Henry Bathurst. He was the Bishop of Norwich between 1805 and 1837. He was a big fan of his port, um, but he lived to the age of 93. Um, He had bad eyesight, and as a 93-year-old, he would often fall asleep at the table as well. Um, So it was a mixture of not being able to see the port next to him or just generally being 93 and a bit sleepy. Mm -hmm. So he would often fall asleep at the table and the port would land next to him. And everyone was too polite to just take it and carry on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he just became infamous for being crap at passing the port. Uh, So hence why people say, do you you know the Bishop of Norwich? Because you've been a bit of an asshole right now. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Um, so yeah, it acts as a reminder, but it's also kind of a bit of showmanship now as well, because it's only kind of really high-end, elite kind of circles that use it. So if there's a noob in your dinner mm-hmm. party and you say that, it gives you a chance to showboat and explain the story. Sure, it's a way to demonstrate your power over them. Yes. Although I quite like it, I might reclaim it. There's another... Um, slightly more passive-aggressive. So if the do, do you know the Bishop of Norwich doesn't work, mm-hmm. they will also move on to is your passport in order, mm-hmm. which is a little ah, bit more. your passport. Yes. Is your passport in order? Mm-hmm. That might get them clicking. Yeah, I think I'd get that one. Yes. Nice. Mm. I like it. No need to passport. We poured all the bottle yeah, into two glasses. Yeah, we half a bottle each. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we, you know, we're sitting here for a while. We're not, we're not pausing to get back up and the filtering took a long time. So, you know, this is what we've done. <laughs> Since we're drinking half a bottle of port each, mm-hmm. perhaps I should talk about the soft drink. <laughs> I mean, if you must. <laughs> um, Portello. Not so popular here in the UK, but there are some areas of the world where... Portello is very, very popular. It's um, a carbonated grape and berry soft drink. Mm-hmm. So it's very rich and fruity. I mean, this port is, that we're drinking in particular is very easy to drink. It doesn't taste too alcoholic. Like You could easily drink this and yeah. not realise. So I, I'm guessing it's a similar kind of thing. Just imagine this, but carbonated. Delicious. Yeah, okay. Um, but I imagine not as complex. <laughs> no, absolutely I'm imagining not. it's more like Schler. 
Yeah, probably. <laughs> I was expecting it to be, I remember we spoke about sorrow in one of our episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm expecting it to be a bit more like that, the sorrowly drinks that I've had in the Caribbean. I just watching Tim have a moment of drinking that port. <laughs> I really was, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was listening to you, but I was had a slight out-of-body moment. Um, so, despite Portela not being all that popular over here, it is believed to have originated from uh, London in mm-hmm. the 18th century, uh, but it quickly spread to the colonies of the British Empire. Um, it's very, very popular. If anyone's been to Australia, you've probably seen it because it's massively popular there. Mm. Um, they've been manufacturing it since the late 19th century and they have a ton of companies making it still. Um, some of those are Kirk's, Bilson's, Diet Right, Woodroof, Nippies, Saxby's, Winners. It's a big deal over there. They drink it a lot. Um, in Sri Lanka as well, randomly, it's very popular. Mm. Um, and it's quite interesting. It's actually Coca-Cola that uh, manufacture it there. So they don't manufacture it for, or sell it in any of the countries other than Sri Lanka. Interestingly, it doesn't seem like they sell it in Australia, which seems a bit weird given huh. its popularity there. Okay. Um, but they do it through the medium of Fanta. <laughs> 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 so they have a Fanta Portello uh, available in Sri Lanka. But it's essentially just a grape, a rich grape, mm-hmm. soft drink. I think you can buy some or get it imported here in the UK, but it's not manufactured here anymore. I'm going to stick with this port. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks for the options. That's all right. Yeah, I'm, I'll have half a bottle of port instead of a <laughs> crappy Fanta. Thanks. <laughs> it might not be crappy. We don't know, just for the record. Don't um, sue me, don't sue me, cook. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me take you back to Porto, mm-hmm. um, where I went to get this bottle of wine. Yes, please do. So I stayed right in the centre next to the river and looking from my hotel I could see all the port warehouses um, just across and I was right next to the the bridge, the Dom Louis, the first bridge. So it takes you about 10 minutes just to walk from kind of the the central kind of tourist part I suppose of Porto over to the warehouses. Um, nearly all of them will offer guided tours and tastings. So not only do you receive kind of a tasting of different port wine varieties, you can learn stuff about the history of the house you're visiting mm-hmm. and broader history of port wine. Um, I suppose I give a warning at this point that obviously if you do more than one, they can be a bit repetitive because mm-hmm. it will tell you all the basics that I just told you um, at the beginning of this podcast that I learned about, you know, its history and the boats and all that sort of stuff, except obviously they'll pronounce it properly. Uh, but there are some distinctions between the different houses that you can be into, and I suppose more importantly, you get to try all their ports, so it doesn't matter if it's repetitive. Um, so the one we've got, Sandinen, um, you may have noticed, uh, if you looked at the bottle, that there's a man in a black cape on the front. That's sort of their main brand image. Uh, and that's because it's copying the uniform of the university students. So they have these black capes and these sort of Spanish-style sombreros. And when you go around, that's what the guides are wearing. So you, you kind of go through these dark port caves with these people dressed up. In, it was founded in 1790, so it's sort of, you know, late 18th century vibe. It mm-hmm. does feel very atmospheric. You can imagine there are ghosts wandering around in these capes and sombreros. Yes. I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, and that's where I bought this bottle from. 
So there's one called Offaly Forrester, uh, which was founded in 1737 by J.J. Forrester. Mm -hmm. And he became renowned for making detailed maps of the Douray region. So that's what you will learn about there, all of his, um, all of his map making and you know, sort of scouting out the Douray region. And he was awarded the title of Baron by the King of Portugal. The King of Portugal has um, a house for himself as well, actually. Um, the Douro region is actually fascinating. There's a lot of Paleolithic art out there if you go exploring. Like 20,000 20, years ago, art from there. It's mostly pictures of horses, I think, if you go back 20,000 20, BCE. Um, but yeah, lots of kind of habitation for mm -hmm. a lot of people around that region, which is cool. There's the Croft Company. This was founded in 1588. So it's already over 400 years old. Um, it's, it's quite a beautiful one to go to. It has a terrace um, and you get to kind of sit there and do your wine tasting at the end. And of course, you know, everything's looking over the, the valley and the river and stuff. So if you go particularly at sunset, it's very nice. Mm. Um, you can, you know, taste their ports, but you can also do a blind tasting like you would if you went to, you know, one of the Wednesday luncheons. Uh, you can do workshops there as well to improve your knowledge on the wine. And it was the Croft Company that was the first actually to launch the rosé port that I mentioned earlier in 2008 called Croft Pink. Uh, another one you might visit is Taylor's. That's quite a famous one. Mm -hmm. That one, in fact, is in its fourth century as well. Uh, they recently renovated a 300-year-old cellars uh, to put a modern museum in it as well. So there's quite a lot you can learn if you're, that's probably like the first place you want to go to if you want to learn all about it. That's my go-to Christmas present is Taylor's. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, you can do the hot tongue opening at Taylor's. Ooh, did you do it? No. Did you do any hot tongue in? I did, I did not, unfortunately. Oh. I didn't participate in that. Reason to go back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's another one called, no, I don't know how to pronounce this one. I'm going to guess that it's like Chalem. Chalem, Chalem, something like that. Um, this experience, this kind of added experience you can get other than the usual port wine cellars at this this cave, you can get a Fado concert. Have you heard of Fado? No. It's the traditional Portuguese music style that can be traced back to the 1820s, but probably, you know, came from other forms earlier on. It's kind of like their local folk um, form, but it's characterised by mournful tunes and lyrics often about the sea or the life of the poor and it's kind of really sentimental about resignation and melancholia and fate which is possibly where fado comes from it kind of it means a few like similar but slightly different things in lots of languages mm -hmm. um like uh, faint and uh, fate and melancholia and um and even sort of singing in music as well so it's quite a good term I saw some of those when I was over there as well. Mm. It's one of those things that you think, well, I probably wouldn't put it on while I was working out. Um, <laughs> but when you are immersed in the culture and the history and you're drinking some port, really like getting into that melancholic mood is very pleasing. And the sort of the singing they do is really quite fantastic. If you just go on, on Spotify and like search Fado, I'm sure you'll find a playlist and um, be able to experience some of it. Okay. And the last one I wanted to tell you about um, is uh, uh, Ferreira, the Cav Ferreira. Uh, this is the only big house of port wine that remained in Portuguese hands since its foundation. So pretty much everything else was 
British at some point, even if it you know, started or still is. This one was founded in 1751. And so that means that it kind of came at the time of the Douro region um, revolution that I mentioned earlier. So it's sort of coming around then and it gets demarcated five years after 1756, the Douro region. So that's kind of why it's very Portuguese. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is the person who ran it was not a British shipping magnate, but Dona Antonia Adele Pereira. Um, she is was a twice widowed young woman who took over the business at the age of 33 and she even funded the education of the children of her workers which reminded me very much in our mummy juice episode when we talked about the champagne houses about mm -hmm. how all the innovations particularly in worker care came from widowed young women yeah and the same thing happened here so i think again we learned the consistent message that if you want to go into the wine business Gotta get rid of that husband. Sorry, Chris. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she's sort of like a bit of a local legend in Porto, for, you know, for obvious reasons, being that she's very Portuguese and she did great things, as yeah. opposed to it was just stuff that they were churning out for the British. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. When you were out in Porto, in mm -hmm. Portugal, you mentioned that, you know, they had some pretty old port there. Mm. How much were they? Were there some really like crazy money ones? I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I think probably I would have, I would remember tens of thousands mm -hmm. kind of region. Mostly when they get to that price, there's no, there's no price label on it because they go up for auction. Yeah. So, you know, it would be like, well, here's the last one of this vintage or something nearby that was sold for this amount. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it comes with risk that it might not be good. Yeah. You don't know. In fact, I believe some people can even get insurance for it. They can oh, pay really? like an insurance premium when they go into sort of vintage wines. So if something turns out bad, they can get some kind of compensation for it. But I'm not really sure how that works. Interesting. I'd like to know how, like, what percentage they get back. Mm. It's going to be really annoying if you spend tens of thousands on something that's undrinkable. <laughs> it would be. But I mean, also remember that the people spending this money don't care about money. True. <laughs> it's not like it's not like we're gonna buy it. Well, it's not we're gonna go arbsies. Speaking of these people, I did find uh, a price. It's it is it's a Guinness World Record for the most expensive bottle of port. Um, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about it, and then you're gonna hazard a guess as to how much it was. Mm -hmm. um, so it dates back to 1863. Right. Um, it was made by. Have you heard of Kneeport? They are port producers, okay. quite prolific, but um, this port in particular is made by the first generation of the new port producers. Um, and it's also, it comes in a Lalique decanter. So if anyone's watched Antiques Roadshow with Inam, they're going to know that Lalique equals monies all mm -hmm. the time. Uh, so yeah, it's a Lalique 1863 decanter. It's very beautiful. It's got a really nice design and it's engraved with Lalique and the Newport name. Uh, yeah, it was a collaboration between Lalique and Newport, which resulted in five Demijohn decanters created. Right. And this was one of the last, I think, if not the last. Um, so yeah, it was filled in 1863, so it's 155 years old. Um, so how much did that go? It sold at auction, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. 
I mean, given that it has, well, special elite to go with it as well. I know when, when special vessels are created, it seems to increase the price of, you know, whatever the drink was by about 10 times anyway. <laughs> I'm going to say a quarter of a million. Ooh. You might want to snap one up because it was a lot less. Oh, okay. Uh, it was in Hong Kong dollars, 992,000, which equates to 95,000 pounds. Bargain. Let's go halves. Absolute bargs. Yeah, done. <laughs> <laughs> but then what if you open it and it tastes like an old shoe? You'd be gutted. Here's the other thing I think about that. Would you ever tell anyone? If you had publicly bought a very expensive bottle of wine, would you ever let it be known that it wasn't good? Wouldn't you just be like, it's the most amazing thing I've ever tasted, you guys really missed out? Yeah, props. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to be made to look a fool. <laughs> yeah, so true. I feel like, you know, uh, yeah, I think that would probably almost never happen. Yeah. <laughs> that we'd know of. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, have we, have we got anything else to talk about or should we slink off and uh, finish these ports with some cheese? I do have a surprise. Mm -hmm. I actually forgot. I'm going to try and stand up and not ruin the microphone. Mm -hmm. But um, I only remembered when you were doing your part and you talked about... I'm going to unclip my mic in case. Um, when you were talking about white port, mm -hmm. I remembered that I do actually have... I bought it ages ago, a white port cocktail for us. Oh, fantastic. I will get it out of my fridge. Mm -hmm. I can't remember where I bought it. I bought it ages ago when I knew we were doing this podcast. Yeah. And they only had one, so we're going to have to share. That's all right. Um, Taylor's. Oh, marvellous. Um, it's white port and tonic. Should we have that for our um, Christmas episode, maybe? Yes. Or yes. White Fabulous. port and tonic, as you mentioned earlier. God, I'm so on brand. You are so on brand. That's all I've got. Thank you. I'm looking forward to having that. Um, and let's crack out some snacks and then come back for... Um, Christmas part two, and we'll do, do some prezzies. Okay. All right, so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to scurry back into the port caves like a boo-sodden Portuguese Batman. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. <laughs> Cheers. Sorry, we're still drinking the port. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or you can always hear me sing and song. Show me the way to go.